was not until we were entering the final hundred yards that I became aware of their presence, three and three-quarters laps behind, lungs begging for relief and legs contemplating a walkout, just off the shoulder of the Minuteman who had become a relentless nemesis challenge. It wasn't looking like I was going to overtake him, and then I guess I probably noticed them because they're out of character engagement. You see, my grandfather rarely made the trip up from Fairbury to visit us in Cozad, and my dad was not normally able to attend our track meets. But these two rather stoic German Mennonites, reserved in all public expression, were that day standing on their feet, screaming their lungs out. They were cheering me forward. The race was close, but they still believed I could win. And from somewhere deep inside, a fresh rush of energy found its way out, and Suddenly I find myself lunging for the tape. It's just such a cheering crowd of finish line encouragers to which the apostle to the Hebrews draws his discouraged congregation's focus. Borrowing from the image of the familiar stadiums and coliseums of the ancient Roman and Greek cultures, the writer highlights 16 saints who are models of strong finishers in a spiritual race. Last week we were in chapter 10 and verse 37 and 38 read, Yet a little while and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. We said last week that that is a a cited quote from Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, where this faith is called a separating faith, a distinguishing faith between those who are trusting in the Lord and those who are not. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, it is described as a saving faith, that the righteous shall live by their faith. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, it was a sanctifying faith. It is the progressive work of the Spirit of God to make us less like ourselves and more like Jesus. But here in Hebrews 10, verse 37, it is a sustaining faith. It's the thing that causes us to press forward to the finish line, to finish strong. The word faith appears 24 times in chapter 11. Follow as I read the first three verses. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Mark that word commendation. It's going to appear again in the text. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The word assurance has to do with a a persuasion or a conviction that God will do what God promised to do. The word conviction is being persuaded that the God who promised is able to do what he said he would do. He never promises to do something that is beyond his ability to deliver. A persistent hope and confidence, faith is a persistent hope and confidence in the promise of God, but more specifically, faith is a consistent confidence in the God who promises. We have... We have diluted the meaning of faith to ask somebody, are you believing, do you have faith? And they say, yes, and we never ask them what they're believing in. All of us have faith. These chairs that you're sitting on are 29 years old. 
you came in this morning, and she said, Dave Drevo was a young guy when we bought these chairs. That's how old they are. <laughs> and you came in and sat down without giving it a thought. You exercised faith. But you see, faith isn't the issue. The object of faith is the distinction. In chapter 3, there's this, this theme that runs through. So he says that the righteous will live by faith, trusting in. Chapter 3, verse 6, he said, we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Chapter 6, verse 11 to 12, he says that we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. And then in the next chapter, he suggested that we make our hero of the faith, Abraham. In this text, he gives us 16 different heroes of the faith. In chapter 6, verse 18, he says, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, which indicates that there's going to be storms, there's going to be pressures, there's going to be turmoils in the journey, but we are anchored, we are rock solid somewhere. What is that? It is a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, the veil that separates the sinner from a holy God. It's been torn from the top to the bottom. When that happened, Jesus has gone there as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Chapter 7, verse 19 says that we have a better hope introduced through which we now can draw near. So what's the purpose of our faith, our hope? Twofold, we will say, number one, it is in order that we might merit a commendation from God, and secondly, that we might exercise the privilege we have of coming near as a sinful people, now acceptably, uh, acceptable into the presence of a holy God. Let us hold fast, he says, the confession of our hope, chapter 10, verse 23, without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. It's not simply our faith, but it's the object of our faith. One author wrote it this way, faith is not a vague hope built on imaginary wishful thinking. It is a settled confidence that something in the future will actually come to pass because God himself will make it happen. It is a confident trust in the eternal God who is all-powerful, infinitely wise, eternally trustworthy. The very God who has revealed himself in his word and in the person of Jesus Christ who always keeps his word of promise. And now I want to have you follow me as we read through chapter 4, beginning, or chapter 11, beginning in verse 4. And, and we're not going to, this is, this is not a role model of homiletical preaching. So if you're a young Sunday school teacher or a young pastor wanting to learn, don't steal this approach at all. But I just want you to follow through as I read and we'll make commentary as we go. I want you to notice that faith, as we said last week, does. Faith has an action attached to it. It's not simply an attitude, but it is what I do in light of what I hear from God. So we begin, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered, there's his action, to God, a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was, here's our word again, commended as righteous. God commending him... By accepting his, notice the word is gifts, plural. 
So apparently it wasn't just a one-time sacrifice of a lamb, but it was a continual habit of worshiping in that way. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. In other words, his role model, his example, lives before us even though he himself lives no longer here. Second, verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. The first rapture recorded in Scripture. Now before he was taken, he was, here's our word again, commended as having pleased God. By faith, Enoch, his action, he pleased God. Now he summarizes it by saying, without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God, which is our motivation, it's our desire, it's the reason for the exercise of faith, that that I would have the confidence to walk through the torn veil on the basis not of my own merit or my own justification, but on the basis of what Christ has done for me. I would have the confidence to come into the very presence of God. To do that, two things have to happen. Number one, you must believe that God exists. You're not going to pursue, seek a relationship with someone you don't believe exists. Secondly, you have to believe that he rewards those who seek him. Verse 7. By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark. By faith Noah, his action, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world. And at the same time he became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed, there's his action, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. It, It probably describes most of us. We have no idea where we're going. Way back in 1976 when I was preaching my farewell message, I preached on the story of Abraham, and I'll never forget Pastor Moore came up to Linda that evening after the message and he said, Linda, I appreciated what Tom preached, but I just wanted to remind you from that moment of his faithful obedience to the Lord forward for Sarah, it was an intense situation. And it turned out that it's been that. Verse 9, by faith he went, there's his action, to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, three generations, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful. Another key word in reading chapter 11 is the word considered. It it, it means not to get swept away by some emotional appeal, some altar call, or some knee-jerk reaction, but the word considered means to sit down, weigh the possibilities, and to draw a reasonable conclusion. So, she said, you're 90 years old. The chances of God giving you the baby you've dreamed of for all these years are slim to none. But what do you know about God? She considered that he was faithful. That God, her God, would not make a promise that he would not fulfill. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, 
were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven, as many as the numeral at the sands of the seashore. Pastor Troy read for us verses 13 through 16, so we're going to jump down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, we're back to Abraham again, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. There's his action. By faith, he offered up. Who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He's waited 25 years for the fulfillment of the promise. And now he's got the son, and he's probably 15 years further down the road, and God said, I want you to offer me this one as an act of worship. What's he going to do? The chances of having another Isaac, and he said it was through this one. I love this, verse 19. So he considered, he sat down, he calculated, he processed through, what do I know about God? And what do I know about God's commandments? And he concluded this, that his God was able even to raise him from the dead. As far as we know, there was no experience of a resurrection of the deceased anywhere that preceded this. And yet when Abraham sat down, he didn't think in terms of his situation or circumstance, but instead he thought in terms of the God who had given the instruction and the promise. So figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac, here's his action, invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. Isaac believed that God would still keep his promise, even though he himself had not yet seen it. He blessed them, expecting forward. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, Genesis 48, his action was he blessed each of the sons of Joseph, the two boys that were born as Joseph was the prime minister of Egypt, the brother who was sold by his brothers into slavery. He, he bowed in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, 110 years old, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, at the end of his life, he made mention of the Exodus. His action, he spoke forward the Exodus of the Israelites, though it is still 400 years future. But God had promised to take his people out of captivity, Genesis chapter 15, plant them back in the land of promise, and even though Joseph was in a privileged position, he still had this conviction that one day God would take his people home. So he said, they're going to do this. I'm prime minister. They're going to do this fancy burial for me here. But when you go home, and you will go home, take my body with you. Genesis 50, verse 20. It's one of those great verses. Lots of you need that one. After being sold out by his brothers, mistreated and abused, at the end of the life when he had an opportunity to level the score, Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good in order that he might bring about the salvation of the many. Verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months. He, Moses had, this was not Moses' faith we see here. This is the, his parents' faith. Moses was very close to his mother when he was born. She made the decisions for him at this time because they saw that the child was beautiful. And everybody that has a child knows their child is beautiful. Let's be honest. Not all children are beautiful. <laughs> so if my family comes up and looks at your baby and said, so sweet, there's a pretty good chance that your child's not considered beautiful. <laughs> They're not talking here about his physical appearance. 
when you look at Acts chapter 7 and others, they realize there was, there was something about their, their son born under a death penalty that they recognized that he was a special creation and gift from God for a special purpose. So they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, now this is his call, he's 40 years old, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had been raised for 40 years in the palace with all of the, of, of the blessings and the privileges of his position and possessions, but he chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He saw something that was more valuable than living in his luxury-blessed life. Here's our word again. He considered, it was not just an emotional response at the moment, but it was a calculated weighing of the cost and of the character of the one who made the promise. And he concluded this, that the reproach of Christ is a greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he was looking for the reward. Faith believes that God is and that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. Verse 27. By faith, he, here's another action, He left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for He endured as seeing Him who is invisible. True faith gives the ability to see what is unseen. By faith, He kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Verse 29. By faith the people crossed. Their faith, their action. They crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down that they had encircled for seven days. Their obedience was they silently marched around the wall six days. And they get up on the seventh day and they march around it seven times without ever seeing a crack created in the masonry. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given. By faith, she gave friendly welcome to the spies. What more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell. It's kind of like he's, he's going along and he looked up at the clock and said, we're running out of time. We just have to speed through this. So you've got basically the, the heroes of chapter 11, the text goes primarily to Abraham and to Moses. Everybody else is getting a participation ribbon. So he just kind of throws it. Probably what's happening is he is, he is, he is uh, speaking this, and his scribe is writing it, and he goes, uh, uh, sir, you're running out of papyrus. There's only 35 feet, and we're getting, we're, we're getting really close to the end. So he accelerates through, and he says, time would fail me to mention Gideon, or Barak, or Samson, or Jephthah, or David, or Samuel, or just all those prophets. They get honorable mention. And then he talks about the successes of their faith. Who through faith conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness. They became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women were receiving back their dead by resurrection. That's the success side. But faith also has a sorrow side, a suffering side 
side. It has a purpose. Some of them were tortured. They refused to accept a release so that they might rise again to a better life. They, they saw that death was just simply God's gift of transition from this life to a better life, and they embraced that. Others suffered mockings. They, they lost their reputations publicly. They, they were flogged. Their, their backs were laid open like strips of bacon through the beatings they took. They were in chains, and they were in prison. They were, they were stoned. They were sawn in two, probably speaking of Isaiah and perhaps Jeremiah. They, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats. They weren't like wearing leather jackets. This is a, they, would, they would drape fresh animal skins over them, put them in the middle of the Colosseum, and turn the wild animals loose on them. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And then this parenthetical, verse 38, of whom the world is not worthy. These people were a cut above them all. They wandered about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. These are the heroes. He said we, we should imitate those who have faith that finish strong, trusting in the promises of God. So we go back to the beginning. For Abel is for those who know that they need a Savior. He, he took multiple sacrifices, gifts to the Lord, recognizing that, believing that perhaps blood offered by the innocent would cover the sins of the guilty. Enoch. For those who long for an intimate friendship. He was living counterculturally in a world that was rapidly decaying. That God himself says in Genesis 6 that he looked down and he saw that the intent of every heart was to do evil continually. And yet there was Enoch. Or Noah. For those who find they have to swim against the cultural current. Noah was working for God. It says in Peter that his, for 120 years he was preaching righteousness and nobody was believing. You can only imagine the mocking that took place as he, as he, was, he was building what he, they, they maybe thought he was going to make an Airbnb out of it or, or rent out condos or something. They're building this thing to float and they had never seen rain and they were a long ways from any body of water and you certainly can't float it on the dew on the grass in the morning. The amazing thing about Noah is this. After 120 years of public ridicule and daily faithfulness, his wife, his three sons, and his three daughter-in-laws were his congregation. Everybody else rejected it, including the parents of his daughter-in-laws, but they believed. As the father of three, and the grandfather of nine, and the great-grandfather of five. I would think that if my family trusted in Jesus, and that's all, that that would be a success. Amen. He was working for God. God spoke to him seven times when you read Genesis 6 through 9. Abraham. For those who feel like lonely strangers in an unfamiliar place. Some of my own children have and grandchildren have been relocated for employment or school or something. And there are times when they just don't feel like they fit in where they are. It's just like, I just, I just want to go back home. And they learn to adapt and eventually they meet friends and all. Some of you are here. You didn't want to be here. You wanted to be someplace else. And 
sometimes you just feel like you're all alone and Abraham was waiting for God, trusting in God in a foreign land where he never fit in. The true faith patiently waits. And it's amazing in Romans chapter 4, verse 18 to 20, it says, in all those years that he was waiting, he never wavered in faith, but he continued to grow stronger and stronger. He believed in the call. He obeyed the call. Even though he went through trial, he believed that God keeps his word. Or for Sarah, for those who long for the unfulfilled. That she, she, she was confident that God had a plan and a promise, but she's now about to blow out 90 birthday candles. And she sat down and calculated, is God trustworthy or not? Or Isaac, for those who struggle with submission to authority. Early on, it wasn't an issue for him. His father says, we're going up on a mountain. He goes, well, we have the wood and we have the fire. Where's the sacrifice? And his father says, don't worry, God will provide the lamb. And his dad ties him up and puts him on the altar. And he could have resisted that. I mean, his dad was, what, 115 years old at this point. About three months older than Drevo at that point. <laughs> but then when it came time to bless the heir of the promise, he wanted to bless the older because he was a man's man. Instead, his wife deceived him and his son deceived him. And even though he was still trying to do it his way, God intervened. Some of us struggle with submitting to authority. We need to read the story of Isaac again. Or for Jacob. Jacob is a story for those who seem to have to learn things the hard way. Knew the promise was that, that the blessing from grandpa would come through him, but his mom helped him deceive his father, stealing the blessing from his brother. And then his mom says, you know, your, your brother's going to kill you. You've you got to get out of here. And so you need to go back to my people. She sent him away having no idea that she would never see his face again. He went away not knowing that his beautiful mother would be gone by the time he came home. He spent 20 years deceiving his father-in-law, manipulating. And then on his way home, he's, he's prospering that is financially, and he becomes a father to many. On his way home, word comes to him that his brother Esau is coming to meet him with 400 trained military and he assumes he's going to take them out. And so Jacob starts dividing up his families, and he sends them all in front and sends all the possessions, hoping that maybe they would be worn out from the slaughter by the time they found him. And then he stayed back on the other side of the river all night. And in the middle of the night, suddenly a hand takes his shoulder and begins to wrestle with him. And as stubborn and as strong as he is, they fought all night. And just as the horizon was starting to turn a shade of pink, it wouldn't be long and it would be rosy red, it came to him that he was not wrestling with a normal man. And this time he decided he was going to hang on. And his opponent touches his hip, dislocates it, disables him, and he just hangs on. 
He says, let me go. And he says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He was willing to risk his life to finally discover the blessing that he had been looking for a lifetime in all the wrong places. I love how Tim Keller summarizes it in Counterfeit Gods when he says of the story of Jacob, and that is why the most blessed of God limp as they dance for joy. For Joseph, for those who feel they've been totally betrayed by those who are closest to them. And yet when he is given an opportunity to even the score at the end of his life, he said, you meant it for evil, don't question your motive, but God meant it for good. Or for Moses, for those who find that position and possession have left them totally empty inside. They've been driven by the fact that if I, if I could get one more job promotion, or if I could jump from this company to that company, then when, when I get there, then everything is going to be good. And then if I could just trade this car up for one more model number, better than I have right now, or if I could, if I could exchange my three-car garage for a four-car garage, then life will be good. If I, if I had all those things, and then Moses had all those things, and he realized there's still something that's void on the inside. I'm amazed at Moses when you read the story, and actually Moses gets the most press of all of the saints in the book of Hebrews. He's mentioned ten times specifically. But he celebrated victory before the battle had even begun. He, he, he went through the Passover appointing or anointing the doorframe with the blood, believing that God would pass over. Or can you imagine what it would be like to be leading two and a half million people on an exodus? And, and you, you use the road map and GPS got you screwed up and you, you end up yourself in, in these high-rise canyons, a box canyon with an with a sea behind you and two and a half million people crushing toward you while the Egyptian army is pressing behind them and they go, some leader you are, Moses. And next time, let's have an election. I think we ought to have a recall here. And then God says, well, just, just hold your staff out over the ocean, which I always suggest that leaders do. When you get in a tight spot, grab your staff and let them take the hit. So he pulls the staff out. The water's part, the most courageous thing ever. They actually walked through Two walls of water. I can almost imagine the middle schoolers dragging sticks along there just to see if it would leak or not. <laughs> Moses was faithful to the commitment God had made. Or Gideon, for those who feel like the odds have been stacked against them. Really? We're going we're gonna to take on the enemy with 300 soldiers? We're going to put lamps inside pitchers and we're just going to use trumpets and that'll, that'll kill them. I've heard some of those praise teams. I, it could happen. Or Rahab. For those who are shamed by the reputation of your past. She was a Gentile prostitute who discovered saving grace. Every time her name appears in the Bible, she is called Rahab the harlot, if you have the New American Standard, or Rahab the prostitute with ESV. Every time except once, in Matthew chapter 1, when she's listed in the genealogy of Jesus, and then Rahab, who had the joy of becoming married 
to a godly Israelite man and became the mother to a Boaz. Not a bozo, but a Boaz. Who is the hero of the four chapters of the book of Ruth. The only reason for doing the helicopter flight through chapter 11 is to stir your heart to go back and read because as I told Linda, the first readers of this, all you had to do was hear the name and they knew the whole story. Because their parents had been faithful to when you rise up in the morning, when you're seated during the day, when you walk about your house and when you go to bed at night, be telling them about the goodness of the singleness of your God. They knew these stories. We we stir your interest only that you'll go back and read them for yourself. Or or Barak, for those that need an encourager to press them into action. He's like, you know, Deborah calls up and says, hey, hey dude, you're, you're in charge of the military. Now get out there and fight the battle. And, and Barak goes, okay, I will if I can hide behind your skirts. Or Samson, for those that believe that their past failures have permanently set them on the shelf. He did not know that his greatest victory was yet before him as he labored day after day in the prison. Or for Jephthah, who had been treated by others as an untouchable outcast. His father had had an out-of-wedlock relationship with a prostitute, and he was conceived. When his father had other children, they threw him out of the family because he was illegitimate. When they were in a desperate state, his tribe went to him and said, you've got to become our defender. And he said, only if you will respect me as your leader. Some of you feel like you're the outcast. Something you had nothing to do with, but it left a mark on you. You need to read the story of Jephthah. For David, for those that are starting on the bottom rung of the ladder, he was, just, he was the forgotten shepherd boy in the fields, and he became the greatest king. Jesus is called the son of David because of his great leadership. Or Samuel, for those whose hearts long to turn the heart of the nation back. Or for the prophets, for those with a passionate message on their soul. Those are the heroes. Here's their heroics. What they experienced. A rapture took place. Eight individuals escaped the flood. A barren womb delivered a son. A son was rescued by a stuck ram. A city was shouted down, a harlot was saved, a military reformers delivered a nation, a shepherd lad became a king, kingdoms were brought to their knees, promises were realized, lions were tamed, flames lost their fire, swords lost their cutting edge, wimps became mighty men, invading armies turned a tail and ran, and moms embraced once deceased children again. But for that story to be told, these are some of the things they had to endure. They had to endure terrible torture, public ridicule and mocking, cruel floggings, extended prison time, stoning, sawn in two, literally cut with a saw while you're still alive, death by sword, or perpetual extreme poverty. Why did they do it? Because of what they saw. They saw the invisible celestial 
city. You see, the book of Hebrews is a story of 16 wholly discontented people. They wanted more. Not more stuff. They wanted more of God. He said they wanted his commendation. They wanted him to declare that they were approved, that they were applauded, that they were embraced. They saw Christian suffering as more valuable than worldly riches. They lived their lives with their hands, as we said about Corey Ten Boom, wide open. They saw the promise of a future personal resurrection. The word commended, I've, I've mentioned that to you as we've gone through. The driving motivation of faith is the realization of the commendation of God. Verse 2, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Verse 4, twice. He, Abel, was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Verse 5, now, before he, that is Enoch, was taken up, he was commended as having pleased God. Verse 39, all these, though commended through their faith. It's, it's to live with such faithfulness that you, like the Apostle Paul, can come to the end of the journey and say, I have run the race. I have finished my course. There is now laid up for me a crown of righteousness. I've fought the good fight. So what are the marks of someone that is commended by God? First of all, the marks of true faithful people are they are daring. They're risk takers. I like to say that the, the, the real heroes of the faith live in a they are people that live with a what if mindset in a world surrounded by oh no what now kind of people they're always on the cutting edge of believing God for something greater they're obedient faith just simply begins with one solitary act of obedience knowing that they're going to answer vertically they God has spoken and they have to take action they are disciplined. By that I mean they don't give up when times are hard. They do the hard things. And they're patient. They're stubbornly unmovable. And they're focused. In the chaos of so many voices all around in the world, they hone in on the quiet voice of the inner spirit of God. And they're expectant. They're relentlessly optimistic. I would put it that way. As, a, as you know well enough, that, that my wife is, she is the ultimate pessimist. It's like when something goes bad, she goes, what do you think is going to happen? So, right. <laughs> On the other hand, God gave her the gift of faith. So God will do something jaw-dropping, I'll go, wow. And she goes, what do you think God was going to do? You know, like let you down or something? Me, on the other hand, I'm... I'm the ultimate optimist. I mean, even my blood type is O positive. It's like <laughs> People of faith are unwavering in their confidence that he who's promised is faithful. They believe God's word. They're willing to embrace God's timetable. They surrender life's dearest treasures for something greater. 
They live in the world of reality, but at the same time, they acknowledge that inevitably, faith is going to face its testings. But they're not living for this world, they're living for another world. They learn to interpret death simply as a glorious promotion. So seven takeaway principles, quickly. Number one, faith is first and foremost a relentless chasing after God. It is a singular driving passion to attain His commendation. The one thing they want to hear at the end of the journey is, well done, good and faithful servant. Principle number two. Faith is longing for God's approval and refusing to settle for anything less. It's Jacob who refuses to let go, though he knows that the sun comes up, he's a dead man. Number three, faith boldly follows before God fills in the blanks. You don't know. In our years of marriage and ministry, The season that we're navigating through now is the third time that God has stirred our hearts to do something that we did not understand the end of the story, as I told you last week. Linda doesn't go to movies unless somebody tells her how the movie ends. And she said last Sunday, she said, you know, I just wish I knew the end of this story. I said, we do. We both die. (laughs) I said, until then, we're both going to live. Faith boldly follows before God fills in all the blanks. Number four, faith seeks to measure circumstances by the size of its God rather than measure its circumstance or the size of their God by their challenges and circumstances. Our tendency is to look and go, oh, this this is way too big. This is way way beyond my God. I've got a book on on my shelf at home now called Your God is Too Small. Number five, faith inspires lives of wonder. 1984, some friends of ours from Gothenburg thought that maybe it'd be good for us to get away and go to Denver and go to a a counseling conference for a week. Man, I tell you what, by the end of the week, I was just like athlete scalp. That's just not my world. But I remember Dr. Larry Crabb made a statement on Friday at the end of the conference. He said, my challenge to each of you is that you would live a life of wonder. And somebody said, Dr. Crabb, what does that mean? And he said, my challenge to you is to live your life in such a way that your children look at you and go, huh? That's what faith does. It hears a voice no one else is hearing. And it discovers a courage that no one else seems to have. And it says yes when others would say no. And those around are arrested. I, I think that's for, since 1984, that's, that's been Linda's and my desire. We, we've talked about it all the time. Has God, has God worked in our lives in such a way that our children, grandchildren, now great-grandchildren go, huh? Number six, faith accepts the world's worst so that it can embrace God's best. But number seven, faith accepts unfulfilled dreams in this life 
as a motivation to seek a better world. True faith lives with a holy discontent. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 13, all of these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. These people speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking about that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Verse 39, and all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be perfect or not be complete. People of faith live with an unrestrainable, holy discontent. They want more. And so just as my grandfather and my father gave me the courage to finish strong, so the next verse is, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are those? These 16 saints and more. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The picture is simply this. These are in the stadium. They're in the seats. They've already run their race. They're there. They're cheering you on. Their voice is saying, don't give up. Don't quit. Press on. Or as Winston Churchill put it, never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never in nothing great or small, large or petty. Never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. 